Welcome to Meaningful Journeys, a podcast about pilgrimage. I'm Dr. Heather Warfield, and I am passionate about connecting humanity through our shared quests for meaning. In this podcast, I'll be talking with pilgrims and pilgrimage scholars. I will have conversations with people impacted by both ancient and contemporary pilgrimage journeys, and we will also hear from people who live at these sacred sites. This program is supported in part by Antioch University, New England, and the Meaningful Life Institute. In this episode of Meaningful Journeys, I talk with Peggy Epig. Dr. Epig is a pilgrim and independent researcher exploring pilgrimage from ecological and environmental studies perspectives. We began our conversation by talking about the varied pilgrimage experiences that she has had. Peggy, uh, I am aware that you have been on many pilgrimages, and I'm wondering if you can talk to us about what makes a pilgrimage a pilgrimage. That's a good question to start with, because I think the answer to that depends on the person. Um, I know for me personally, I have um, a couple of different things that I find affect me deeply, and that a good long walk is the way I sort things out. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call those kinds of walks pilgrimage. But in terms of working things out on a good long walk, um, anytime that I can connect to um, a person, an event in the past, or even current events, um, and somehow tie my thinking and my thoughts and potentially my actions post-walk, you know, to how I sort through problems and issues that, that I'm encountering, then I'll call that a pilgrimage. So an, an instance, of, for instance, would be this past May um, when social unrest erupted all over the country because of the killing of George Floyd um, as a Quaker um, and as a Quaker who belongs to a, a historic meeting um, in Northern Maryland, Southern Pennsylvania um, that had a lot to do with um, abolitionist activities in this area. The whole idea of civil rights and um, you know, violence towards people because of their color, racism, um, anti-Semitism, that all affects me deeply. And so in May, I had already been doing some research on an underground railroad route that runs literally through my backyard, through this region, um, across the Susquehanna River and on up into Lancaster County. But then May happened. And I thought, well, you know, the historian part of me was like, this is cool research, right? Why not walk it, said the pilgrim and me, and then walk it with intent directed towards um, those ideas of, of why we're still dealing with these issues, you know, why this is still part of the American culture and what can I do about it? And that became a pilgrimage for me, um, walking 55 miles from out my back door to Christiana, Pennsylvania. So, you know, and, and I think if you ask any of the eight other people who went with me, um, you know, why was this a pilgrimage for you? They might have similar answers, but very personal ways that it was going to, you know, result in action or a different way of thinking or a devotional, you know, act as a result. Uh, in those 50-some miles uh, along the Underground Railroad, what are some of the experiences or thoughts that you had um, that connected you to the past and, and also to the injustice uh, and injustices that were going on in the present? Yeah, that um, it hit home. Um, here along the Mason-Dixon line, there is still a very visible and strong presence of white supremacy. 
um, a fellow historian, environmental historian from Boston, um, is doing a, a book, I believe, and I'm not exactly sure yet what that's going to be, either a series of articles or, or, or a book on this phenomenon along the Mason-Dixon line. You know, it seems to be a magnet for that kind of activity. As we were walking, and even when I was doing research without the idea of it being a pilgrimage, these were some of the questions I was asking myself, like why? Why is this area a magnet for the Confederate battle flag? Why is this area a magnet for um, activities that in any other community would not be tolerated? Um, and this is a, an area, you know, Southern York County, Northern Hartford County, um, in the lower Susquehanna Basin, which was known, um, sadly, well known for um, slave stealing, kidnapping, violence against people of color during the 1850s and during um, the early years of the Civil War. So here we are, 2020, 2021, still, you know, dealing with these kinds of um, visual and cultural um, aspects of, of white supremacy. And so as we're walking, I think all of us were hypersensitive to the Confederate battle flag, you know, and that would start conversations among ourselves, or maybe not at all. You were just kind of like, implying, you know, your concern by seeing so many. Um, our pilgrimage took us through two historically um, black communities, one, a freeman's community of um, historically uh, free blacks who settled in this region um, as men and women, you know, born into freedom. And then further up on our pilgrimage towards our end point of Christiana, which is really where the whole civil war started in 1858 with a riot or an unrest, um, depending on how you want to frame it. Um, we walked through and, and walked with descendants from um, an emancipated uh, community in Lancaster County. So that was the, the goal, you know, to escape from their enslavement and end up at this particular place in Christiana. So our thoughts were really looking at the present day, I guess the visuals of white supremacy and violence, and then connecting them to these past in historic places, um, documented safe houses, documented churches um, where abolition activities, abolitionist activities occurred. Um, the Parker House, which was, you know, the 1857, 58 um, unrest, murders, and, and um, I guess, you know, demonstrations and protests and arrests. So it was not hard to connect past and present on this walk. Um, in other pilgrimages, let's say St. Cuthbert's Way that I've done you know, from Scotland going to Holy Island, um, issues of, of wildlife conservation, you know, which are one of those issues that affect me deeply, uh, care of the earth, stewardship, um, and past and present, again, linking closely together as I went. And then, you know, arriving on the North Sea at Holy Island. Yes, a lot of people go to Holy Island as a religious site. You know, it's, it's hundreds of years old, recognized as a pilgrimage center. But for me, I was walking um, with, with those questions of conservation and climate change in mind. And finding a lot of connection with St. Cuthbert and other early saints whose concerns were about creation. So it's not hard for me to pull past and present together on these walks. And I think one informs the other. Um, and I, in, in the sense of historic concerns, definitely those, those histories inform how I think about our current situations. As I'm walking, I have the best thoughts, ideas, plans, you know, when I walk, 
Now, whether I stick with all that afterwards, that's another question. Um, going back to the <clears throat> the pilgrimage uh, along the under Underground Railroad, um, are are these pilgrimages uh, organized? Are they? Uh, I heard you say that you went with a group of people. Uh, so was that something that was sort of self organized? Uh, and then also, what types of um rituals or acts of remembrance or um moments even spontaneous moments happen um while you're walking along on the on the route yes the first question is somewhat spontaneous um the members of my quaker meeting knew i i was engaged in this research you know even pre covid because i would give updates on it at our meeting um, and working with the Network to Freedom historians and Christiana and down in Cambridge, Maryland, you know, everybody knew I was working on this, um, trying to rediscover this route. Um, the, it's called the Pilgrim's Pathway, um, trying to rediscover exactly how it moved and shifted over time through this area. Um, so when May 2020, happened. We're all in COVID lockdown. We're all, you know, how many people took to trails and, you know, our trail systems were, were just overloaded here with people trying to get out of their houses and enjoy nature and get some sunshine. For us, it was a road walk um, because roads were the, the network of the Underground Railroad. Um, we had thoughts about trying it at night when it would have been traveled, um, but here the roads are just too dangerous you know, to, and too narrow um, to try something like that at night. So as I spoke about this research and, and my, you know, desire to actually try to walk sections of it, I guess basically to provide some ground truth to the research I was doing, you know, is this house still there? Is a foundation of this place still there? Is there a barn still standing where in the haymow people were hidden? Um, so I decided just to start walking recreationally and, you know, for health reasons because of COVID. And people were like, well, can we go with you? <laughs> so my weekend hikes, just to, you know, confirm these sections, um, just became sort of a, you know, companion-filled day of walking, wandering around um, York and Lancaster County. It was suggested um, by one of the elders in our meeting that we actually formalize this. And that came about because of the social unrest and the George Floyd um, situation um, as a way for our Quaker community to reaffirm its commitment to um, social justice, environmental justice, and then to connect with what our ancestors did and how they were active, you know, during that period, 1850 to the Civil War was when most of the Deer Creek Friends meeting members were very active in Underground Railroad activities. In terms of um, the spontaneous gathering, um, we had just communicated among ourselves, and there were maybe three or four people who were interested. Word got out, though, um, as it always does. And the morning of our, to begin our three-day walk, we, we broke it into three sections because we did have some older walkers with us. Um, we didn't want to make, you know, make 20 miles a day out of it. But <laughs> opening day, you know, our goal was to leave from the front porch of the Quaker meeting and then walk to the front porch of the Christiana Zercher's Hotel. Um, like over 20 people showed up. Now, those all those extras, you know, they chose which day they were going to walk. They walked maybe sections of a day. Um, I'd say a dozen did all three days. Um, one who could not do the third day because of a work commitment went back and walked it herself. Um, even without the big welcome from the descended community, you know, she wound up on the front porch of Zercher's, Zercher's Hotel. And, and that's where a little ritual kind of was created. Um, when we got there, we were met by members of descendant communities, um, African-American um, members of the Christianity 
Christ, Christiana um, Township and Town, and members of local AME churches were there along with some historians. And, you know, we, we made a toast. We had a moment of silence. We did a, a Quaker, you know, circle up, silent worship short. Um, but that was our intent. We were going to end that way anyway. Um, but along the way, to include the woman who walked one day solo by herself, um, stopping in front of or nearby some of the sites that are documented to have you know, sheltered people or where um, abolitionists lived and worked from, um, there, there were moments of silence. You know, we would stop our walk and, um, you know, honor those people back in the 1850s and early 1860s who risked everything, you know, their own lives escaping slavery and their businesses and reputations for assisting them, you know, those who were, free, you know, freedom seekers. So rituals kind of emerged with intent, like the big circle up at the end, um, but they were also peppered throughout the three days walk. That was true to St. Cuthbert's Way, um, the Camino, um, the AT, just moments of silence, I think, are how I engage with ritual um, during a pilgrimage. I'm glad you mentioned the silence because I was uh, just thinking about uh, your, your Quaker community and affiliation, and I'm not super familiar with Quakerism, but I do know about the appreciation and embracing of silence. Uh, and I'm wondering if the these moments of silence during your pilgrimages are an extension of how you experience spirituality in your uh, in your home meeting place. I think so. Yes. Um, you know, in the Quaker well, pilgrimage, first of all, has a long tradition among Quakers. It's really how it was founded. You know, George Fox was so fed up with the church at the time that he went for a long walk, you know, and he had his aha moment on top of Pendle Hill. Um, and from there, a whole new religious movement was born. Um, so the idea of, of listening, of being silent is is interwoven with that idea of, of the long walk of intent. Um, and it also is interwoven into Quaker service, service for worship. Um, the idea there being that you're listening and you're listening with not just your ears, but with your heart and to experience, um, some people call it a leading, um, others inspiration, myself, um, I call it the nudge, you know, like <laughs> I think about, um, oh gosh, it's been many years sitting in our Quaker meeting house on a Sunday morning for 10 o'clock silent worship. And, um, I was afraid to close my eyes cause I was so tired that morning. I was afraid I was just going to nod right off. And honestly, some people do. I am one of them, um, but I kept my eyes open. I kept staring out the window ahead of me, you know, with the wavy glass, the old wavy glass, and there was a dogwood outside um, and it was just coming into bloom. And so the wavy glass made it look very kaleidoscopy, right? And so I was really fascinated with just watching that. Um, and I focused on that in silence. Everyone else around me, you know, eyes closed, heads bowed. Um, but I was very focused on this image of the dogwood flower through the wavy glass. And um, I, I can't say with confidence it was a nudge, um, but it was like having a conversation with that tree, you know, with the light, with um, the idea of the blossoming tree. Um, and I was kind of like hyper aware for the next week or two um, about trees. And that has always stuck with me. So on my walks, whether they're just for fun or an actual pilgrimage, you know, just 
I just spend a lot of time looking and appreciating trees. And because of that, that day, not talking, not saying anything, no prayers, no dogma, just that one-on-one -on -one focus on that tree became then for me this practice of being silent in nature, either as I'm walking um, or stopping along the way for some meditation and focus on a, you know, a tree, a plant, a bloom, a bird. Um, so the idea of listening is important to the Quaker tradition of worship, but it is also tied to the idea of pilgrimage. When did you first become aware of, of pilgrimage as a concept or a practice or an idea? So like a thousand years ago, I'm going to say 1993, 94, seems so long ago. Um, there was a really rough patch in my life, a really rough patch in terms of a job that I loved, but it just wasn't working out. Um, working for a very difficult boss in a good old boy system, you know, park police, what can I say? I loved my job, but it, it, it wasn't happening. You know, it's very difficult um, day to day. And I wound up quitting. I just said goodbye to something I had worked towards and studied for, worked my way up through the system, and I walked away from it. And I literally walked away from it. And I kept walking. So I walked from Pennsylvania to Maine on the AT, not as a through hiker. I didn't do the whole thing. I just picked up where I was, right? Um, but that time and that space allowed me to kind of reconfigure in my mind and my heart what it was that I was put here to do. Um, it became clear to me I wasn't meant to be in uniform. It wasn't meant to be, you know, in this kind of atmosphere of um, uh, tension, constant tension, um, enforcement. And I, I experienced, um, I guess, as a pilgrim, moving, being the transient one, right? Moving from state to state, from mountain to mountain. I experienced the idea of conservation and what I could do as a conservationist um, in much more effective and I guess caring ways that didn't involve being a park police officer. Um, I don't know if I had not gone on that walk, if the story would have ended the way it did, where I you know, committed to a new way, a new vision of, of working in conservation. Um, so I would say that was probably my first very unplanned, you know, just, <laughs> just quit my job and walked away. But I consider that a pilgrimage. In the formal sense, I became um, aware of the idea of pilgrimage as this tradition, right? Um, when I decided to go for a walk on the Camino de Santiago in 2016, um, as a way to celebrate having earned my doctorate from Antioch, um, one of my mentors, you know, Joy Ackerman, had done it. And I thought that sounds kind of cool. And we had been talking about in class, you know, how are we going to celebrate when the day comes that we can say, well, yeah, we defended our dissertation, we survived our doctoral programs. I thought, oh, she had a cool idea. <laughs> I'll go do what Joy did. Um, on the first day, I got snagged by a couple of academics from Texas who were walking with a group of students. And I wound up kind of, you know, intersecting with them the whole 550 miles, sitting in on their town meetings, on their, you know, their spontaneous class sessions, and then walking with George Greenia, you know, was a treat. So George is the founder of the Institute of Pilgrimage Studies. Um, and we chatted quite a bit as we intersected with that group and, and others who were walking for you know, research reasons and scholarship and um, religious reasons. And it just, I just fell in love with the idea of doing, you know, gosh, you can actually do work in this field, right? As a field um, of study. And then I just you know, branched out from there and stayed connected to the Institute of Pilgrimage Studies, won a fellowship, did some walking with, with that help 
Um, and so now I'm writing about it. So, you know, as, as a concept, as pilgrimage as a concept, it's such a huge idea. Um, and, and the way I break it down into something where I'm engaged very actively with it is as an environmental, um, as an environmental movement, you know, walking through landscapes, environmental history, um, environmental spirituality. Um, and in the case of, you know, our, our Underground Railroad walk, environment figured into that whole walk 110%. So that's kind of like my niche in the larger field of pilgrimage studies. Well, I very much appreciate your article about uh, uh, the an ecology, the ecology, an ecology of pilgrimage. Uh, and what I appreciated so much about the the piece is the recommendations that you offered um, for pilgrims. And um, if you wouldn't mind going through those, uh, because I think they're they're so tangible and and accessible uh, that I I would be really happy to have other people know about those. So one of the recommendations I I made was to take up bird watching, you know, now I know not everybody's interested in bird watching, but when you're out there walking, whether, you know, on pilgrimage or just recreationally, and, you know, and maybe this is a thread that ties back to that Quaker, you know, tradition of silence, just listen, you know, there are whole conversations going on that are not human. <laughs> and, and so the bird, you know, the the ecology of, of birds in the landscape um, strikes me as a great way to not only um, become engaged with this landscape that you're only in for minutes at a time. The landscape is constantly changing as you're walking, um, but there's always bird sound and bird activity. And when you start to get into some of the medieval art, especially pilgrim art, um, uh, paintings. I know that in um, Burgos, the art museum that is, um, I think, in the basement of the cathedral in Burgos. Oh, every other painting, if not most of them, have the images of birds um, that were used as, you know, symbolism in symbolism to represent the virtues or um, the saints themselves or episodes in history. And so by reading the landscape that you're actually walking through by listening and looking at the birds, you can tie that symbolism to the art during the high period of, of medieval pilgrimage. Um, so I suggest, you know, take a small pair of binoculars with you. Now I did get ribbed. I was teased um, by a couple of pilgrims who thought that that was a little much, you know, God, those aren't they're heavy around your neck. Well, no, they're not because they're small, you know, and um, I, my favorite pair is the Pentax um, binocular. It's tiny, um, eight by 24, I think, um, are the oculars. And, and so I just had this little pair of binoculars. I still carry them everywhere I go. They're just small, compact. I wear them all the time. Um, they don't weigh anything, so there's no pressure on your neck. So I suggested, I think, in that article, like it's just a small, compact pair of binoculars. But I also found them very useful for when you went into cathedrals and museums where there were architectural details too far above your head that you could really study. So here I was like, you know, in, in, a, in Santiago, you know, different cathedrals, different chapel, chapels, and I've got my binoculars trained on, you know, the stained glass windows high up or stork nests on bell towers, you know, and people were stopped and like, we never, we didn't even notice that till we saw you with your binoculars, you know? So yeah, noticing through using birds kind of like as the, as the vehicle to noticing more and more. Um, there are some really good environmental histories written about uh, like bestiaries and, you know, catalogs of animals um, that include that symbolism. Um, and those are pretty easy to find you know, just looking for the books or articles and, and maybe to read some of that material before you go, if you're going to walk in Europe. Um, 
and another another point about the birds is that you know parts of parts of Europe and certainly along the Camino, the route that I did from uh, Saint Jean Pied de Port to Finisterre, um, there are sections of the Camino de Santiago that are rewilding. You know, there's this phenomena called a rural depopulation, which is happening pretty much the world over, but in Europe it's very pronounced, where you know rural people are either dying off or farming regions are being abandoned, um, people moving to cities. So large parts of Northern Spain are, are being abandoned for various reasons, but they're also becoming wild places again. So that whole Cuthbert idea of creation, you know, is, is part of the plan. Creation is is we're part of it, that integrated ecology of us in the landscape, and then this rewilding background. Um, so I think, you know, one of the things I said in that article was, you know, maybe do a little pre-study about some of the areas you'll be walking through. And that really helped not just me, but some of those Texas students I was walking with, like, oh, this is a bird reserve. It used to be a factory yard and now it's known for red kites and you know the raptor population here has exploded so we made sure to stop for a good half hour and just watched the raptors hunting mice and voles in the in the meadows which used to be a zinc mine you know and now you couldn't tell you couldn't tell anything had been there it was wild it was full of birds full of you know, red kites hunting rodents and the students were just enthralled so that was you know, part of the inspiration for adding that piece into that article. You know, botany, there's another example. Become familiar with your roadside plants. You know, at the time I walked, and we'll probably walk again, you know, the red poppies were everywhere. You know, what are the medicinal uses of that plant? What is the history in terms of symbology of that plant? Um, you know, Emily Dickinson highlighted in her work the language of plants, right? Um, so there was that, you know, I was carrying that with me and still do. What is the language of plants that we encounter? You don't have to be a botanist, but you know, as, a, as an amateur botanist or someone who just appreciates wildflowers and moths and bees, you know, maybe, maybe learn a dozen that you are familiar with and can find as you walk and they become companions, right? And the more you recognize them as companions, the more you realize you're you're learning something extra about your walk, you know, inside as well as on the physical landscape. So those are just two examples. I recently, I did two or three weeks ago, there was a, a piece published talking uh, where the authors talk about an anthropause that we've had. Uh, have you heard this phrase? I've heard it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You probably have thoughts about it um, that may or may not be related to this podcast episode. Uh, but it did, it did prompt me to think about how people, there has been an anthropause um, during the pandemic. And so um, natural spaces have changed because of the lack of human um, interaction with the natural world. So how do you what how do you think we move forward uh, with people who may be now going on pilgrimages, uh, easing back into pilgrimage travel? How do how do we become more mindful uh, during this, the, the, you know, the next couple of years? Uh, because it seems like there's that because of this uh, sort of pulling back uh, of humans from the natural world, and now uh, it's it it, it it almost seems like it might uh, become magnified even more the human impact on the environment, especially in pilgrimage spaces. So how how can we as as humans be aware of that? So as we reemerge um, into, I'll say, normal life with a little asterisk after it, because of course, it can never be like it was, right? Um, but I would say, uh, to pay attention to, to how our natural landscapes look now, um, during the COVID and pandemic lockdowns, um, and remember that there will be a time after. So, and uh, for instance, 
um, I met a couple. I was recently hiking on the AT. I'm doing a series of circuit hikes, trying to work, work my way through Pennsylvania. I'm doing sections of the AT and then sections of the side trails to make a loop or old roads to make a loop back to where I parked my car. I was on a loop, um, a pretty well-known AT blue trail loop. And there was a couple walking very slowly. Um, they were older. So at first my thought was that they were, they had some mobility issues. Who knew, right? Until I got up and you know, was getting ready to pass them. Well, they were doing um, a very Zen Buddhist kind of walk where they were, you know, measuring their paces and stopping every, I think, 12 steps to take a breath. And they were walking four miles like this in a loop. Um, and so I, of course, had to talk to them. <laughs> and, um, and I did not get their names. I'm so sorry if you're listening out there. I'm sorry I didn't ask who you were. Um, the, the woman who was, you know, walking, very, again, very slowly, um, they both stopped. But she, she said she wants to remember this time um, where it was clear to her and her husband, who was nodding along, that nature has saved them from what could have been a period of depression, um, a feeling of helplessness, that this walk was to, to not only honor the here and now of our situation, but to remember that we kind of owe it something when things get back to the way they were or almost to the way they were. Um, and she mentioned, and I became very aware because of this, of the amount of garbage and trash on some of our more popular trails, especially the trailheads on the AT and, and here where I live, the Mason-Dixon Trail and the Conestoga Trail. Um, and so for them, they had begun the practice of cleaning up trailheads so every Saturday morning, they're out. They may not hike that day, but they're cleaning up the parking areas. You know, um, I noticed the blue sky with the the reduced number of flights. You know, I'm under a flyway from um, Philadelphia to Baltimore to BWI, and pre-COVID, this I'm not going to say it was deafening, but you know, you could count a good fifty jets go over at altitude, not low, but you were just aware of the air traffic. Now there's nothing, maybe the occasional jet. And so I began thinking about, wow, you know, I used to be on those jets, you know, going to Europe or, you know, conferences around the country, which we all doing on Zoom right now. Um, and so it's the blue sky and the silence of the sky has made me really aware of what comes next as we all rush to get back to some sense of normalcy and start traveling again. You know, I'm, I would just caution people to think about that rush into what you thought was normal um, and, and to think about the impact that getting back to a, a, a human dominated world um, might have on some of these places that have already suffered with the you know, extra traffic, foot traffic and, and what have you, but you know, the sky, um, and then once we're there, if we ever get there, you know, my college at Goucher, they're talking about opening the campus come summer. Um, and one of the participants on, on one of our meetings about what to do this summer on campus, obviously in a safe way, mentioned, oh, you know, there's a family of foxes that is, have moved into this little area that we used to do outdoor classes. And she's not going to have classes there. She's going to she thinks they ought to tape that area off and let the foxes finish raising their kits. You know, don't rush right back to that spot this summer. Let them have it. You know, so I think pay attention to wh what's happening around us now. Like, pay attention to where we are in the physical and spiritual space of nature right now and, and try to project, try to predict ahead what it might look like fully involved again in the human endeavor of day-to-day -day life and like the couple who was walking that circuit up in Michaud State Forest you know just remember and don't forget what this looks like now and what our obligations are in future as pilgrims as users of outdoor space 
And what about the heightened awareness uh, of places in that are in close proximity to us? Uh, you know, you you talked about the Underground Railroad, and I know from a previous conversation or two about some of the environmental pilgrimages that you've done, um, and and valuing those sites that are close to you and engaging with sites uh, where there has has been environmental damage impact. Um, how do we in how how do we engage with these places? Uh, that we may pass by, but we see them, can we see them more in a sacred uh, way now? Yes, I think so, if we learn how to see. Um, you know, the human built environment is full of stories, and you don't have to dig very deep to find stories that will just tear your heart open. Um, one of those places, uh, over the summer, a friend and I did a series of, of monthly pilgrimages, we call it environmental pilgrimages, to, to, to industrial areas. You know, they weren't nature-filled spaces. They were gritty, dirty, trash-filled places that have seen better days. Um, and we went with the intent of, of learning more about the stories um, associated with those places. One of those places um, was Denora, which is south of, Pen of Pittsburgh on the Monongahela River. Um, and I'll leave it to listeners to look that story up. But the Donora, D-O-N-A-R-A, um, smog event, uh, that event says enough. But the, you know, the, the loss of the steel industry, the loss of the industries along the river has resulted in, you know, crushing poverty. And so we walked pilgrimage through these uh, river towns that had once been thriving you know, Pennsylvania steel, um, Pittsburgh steel sites that are now just deserted and desolate. Um, we tried to, you know, patronize what local restaurants we could find. <laughs> there weren't many, you know, and, and had conversations with residents as we walked um, about, you know, drug abuse and addiction issues that have kind of just captured some of these small river towns. So, by walking in places and spaces like this that are not scenic, that might even be dangerous. You know, we uncovered for ourselves stories that need to be shared um, with others. And we did that, you know, at our Quaker meeting and, and um, in our networks, you know, maybe, you know, when things get back normal, go up and see the Donara Smog Museum, make a donation, you know, take their tour. They do a walking tour through town. Um, and kind of give a little credit to the folks who fought for clean air laws, which became, you know, EPA as a result. Uh, we also went to a, a, a little town, I'll stay within Pennsylvania because we couldn't leave Pennsylvania. Uh, we went to the little town of Chester, south of Philadelphia, which has another not very deeply hidden story of just huge environmental tragedy, which um, to this day, um, doesn't receive rec official recognition. In there's no monument. There's no memorial to the firefighters lost because of exposure to um, chemicals um, during this huge fire, the Wade fire that happened in Chester. Um, and Chester is the center of environmental justice activities right now. Um, so we walked, um, my daughter-in-law, my daughter-in-law, who's a firefighter, we walked, um, to the site of the Wade fire. It's a parking lot. Um, we talked to some retired firefighters who have lost friends and family members because of exposure to chemicals. They, they fought so hard to have a memorial put there in this little tiny pocket park, just a stone that says on this site, dot, 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 and the city won't allow it. They don't want attention brought to this. Um, we walked to the incinerator, which is the largest incinerator on the East Coast, and it takes trash from cities up and down the coast, Ocean City, Wilmington, uh, New York City, and this trash is burned, including recyclables, at this huge incinerator, and that, that pollution drifts over these neighborhoods, and they have high rates of childhood asthma, high rates of um, heart and lung disease. And so community groups have reorganized as a result um, of 
the current administration's commitment now to environmental justice. But walking these places like Chester, like Denara, um, and with the intent of talking to people. You know, it, sometimes it's easy when we're walking pilgrimage to kind of stay within our own little space, right? This is my pilgrimage. This is my attempt <laughs> at grounding myself in, in a place. But by expanding the idea of pilgrimage as to include a conversation with the people who live in that space, um, it, it has not only brought attention to us personally, um, that these things have happened and these things are still being dealt with, like social injustices, you know, bigotry, white supremacy, but environmental injustice is, is something that's happening right now um, in Chester, in Denora. And by taking that story home and sharing it, whether you write a blog or talk to your friends at church or in the neighborhood about what you did last weekend, you know, that kind of spreads the awareness of, of how these places as as tough as it has been for them. And th there are hundreds of sites like this in Pennsylvania. I'm not even thinking beyond the Pennsylvania boundaries, but hundreds of places like this in Pennsylvania that have stories that people want to tell. And that as pilgrims, we can listen and we can share. Um, and maybe through that, that's the purpose of our pilgrimage, that something happens as a result of that storytelling. Um, so in terms of environmental pilgrimage, yes, you know, some of the, some of it's very depressing, <laughs> you know, you, you really do carry some, some heavy weight when you're thinking about what's happened in these places and, and how to get that story out. But environmental pilgrimage can also be like walking through a rewilding area, you know, that used to be heavy industry, which is now this amazingly beautiful park full of biodiversity and birds, you know, so environmental pilgrimage can, can, can tip the scales one way or the other. Um, but there's, there's hardly a place where I've walked and I've walked thousands of miles that hasn't been impacted in some way, shape or form by people. So all of these landscapes carry the human story. Um, how visible it is, is up to us. How well do we see it, if we can see it at all? And then what we do with our experience afterwards, that nudge, right? Um, I've attended now citizen group meetings via Zoom because we can um, for Chester and just how empowered folks are to get this incinerator shut down. And not, you know, not just sitting in on the meeting, but I can say I saw it with my own eyes and I talked to residents face to face and firefighters who want their little memorial in this little tiny pocket park. It's all they want is a stone. You know, so by getting these stories out and engaging with the wider community about environmental situations, whether they're pretty or ugly, you know, as pilgrims, it's almost like an obligation we have, I feel like. Like the what next is our involvement. Now that the pilgrimage is done, what do we do with that experience and the things that we have learned? And how will that benefit those places where we've walked? It seems really important to be able to use a pilgrimage framework for a lack of better term and pilgrim framework uh, to view and, and engage with sites and people, um, it, it, it almost changes the intent, what might be a, a walk through an ugly part of town becomes a pilgrimage, uh, of remembrance or acknowledgement or recognition or, uh, seeing in a new way, and then the identity of the pilgrim also changes the way we interact with people along that way. I agree. And I think when people learn, when you tell them, when you share with them that you are a pilgrim having this experience in their place, in their landscape, that relationship changes. You know, their view of why you're there changes. I'll give an, a quick example. Linda Harris, um, who walked from Cambridge, Maryland, from the Harriet Tubman Museum in Cambridge to Kennett Square recently. I, I interviewed her for my podcast just the other day. Um, a woman of color walking through areas along the Mason-Dixon line, which aren't exactly safe even today for a woman of color to walk. Um, and yet she said her 114 mile odyssey, you know, walking Delmarva into Pennsylvania was filled, she said, with joy 
and happy people and compassionate people. She said she walked past, you know, black woman carrying a backpack and walking sticks, walked past homes where, you know, certain flags were flying and yard signs were made it pretty clear, you know, how certain people felt about um, political issues and, you know, where their leanings were. And as she's walking, she said, you know, she had somebody called the cops on her. Um, somebody rolled by in a truck and, and said some pretty unpleasant things to her. But she said that was like a small fraction of, of what happened on her walk. She said that even from those homes that were flying the flags, when people came out and asked what she was doing, she would say, I'm a pilgrim. I'm walking to Kennett Square. The whole relationship changed. She said, I had meals in their homes. They would stop the next morning and deliver my snacks. You know, they were thrilled that I was doing this, she said. She said it was absolutely a mind-blowing experience to be introduced to others who live in that space as someone passing through. And here's why I'm passing through. You know, she, she named her group Walking with Harriet. She did accumulate some friends you know, who trained with her and who went along. Um, and now she, I think she has over 9,000 likes on her Facebook page, Walking with Harriet. They're walking from Selma to Montgomery, you know, same kind of thing. But as pilgrims, she was very clear about that. And that's how she introduces herself. I'm a pilgrim in this place. Here's why I'm walking. When we were walking in Chester, uh, my daughter-in-law and I, you know, there, there are some really unpleasant things um, that we encountered even in some of the um, urban renewal areas, uh, just, you know, brand new stadium, Riverside Park, looking nothing like it did during, you know, the industrial age full of coal plants and factories, but all very landscaped now and, and looking clean and pretty. But there were things that we witnessed and saw that were unsettling. And we were approached by a man who was very angry about something that happened in a parking lot. And I have to be honest, I was nervous because he was approaching us in a very aggressive way, um, claiming that we were walking on his turf. And I explained, I said, we're just pilgrims here. You know, we're here to, to witness, is how I framed it. We're here to witness. And he just pulled up short. And he said, thank you for your prayers. We need them. And the whole situation just de-escalated and he walked with us for a good 10 minutes and explained why he was angry and he shouldn't have been so angry and this is not anybody's fault the way and way we live and what we're subjected to um, and thank you for being here so by identifying as pilgrims and by talking with people along the way whether they're fellow pilgrims or whether they're people who live along your route um, it changes the whole relationship between you, them, and the landscape by, you know, claiming that, that space, that identity as a pilgrim. Um, one more thought I was having about the Underground Railroad experience that we had walking to Christiana. We, we did encounter you know, a, a car veered. We had two children who were with us who were... Um, African-American children, and a, and a car veered towards us as it was traveling down the road. It just, I guess, a scare, right? A little microaggression. Um, but the way that the car veered towards us walking on the road edge um, was interpreted differently by different pilgrims on our walk. You know, to me, it was just, oh, he's just being a jerk, right? You know, but to those young boys, that was an intentional act to try to hurt them. Um, so even among pilgrims, like talking about how we interpret situations or events just kind of opens up a whole new way of thinking about that experience. Now, you know, could we have, you know, shouted at that driver? You know, could we have made some gesture? Sure. But, you know, that the idea that we are pilgrims kept us in line in that sense. You know, nope. We're not gonna. We're not gonna do that. We're not gonna shake our walking sticks and, you know, holler as he drives down the road. Nope. But we did talk about what it meant for each person to, you know, be in his headlights, basically, 
you know, with him coming right at us at about 50 miles an hour on a 25 mile an hour street and then veering at the last second. So there's that. That's uh, the, the idea of uh, bearing witness uh, is quite powerful, actually. Um, and that's you've given me a lot to think about, actually, uh, in 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 this hour. Uh, so I really appreciate that. Um, I heard you say that you have a podcast and uh, I know you're doing some further writing about pilgrimage. And so what are the projects that are happening next for you? So, yes, um, I haven't published the podcast yet. I'm working to get my first three interviews together, edited, polished, and then I'll post. And it has the name, The Uphill Road. Um, I'll share that with you in the future. Um, it has its own Facebook page, The Uphill Road. Um, but that is also the title of the book I'm working on. Um, and the book is centered on environmental pilgrimage. That's kind of the focus a little bit that we've talked about here today. Um, but I'm hoping that the podcast gives uh, more time and space to some of the things I'm writing about. Um, for instance, the Underground Railroad um, pilgrimage that we did was one of, as a result of May 2020, um, was one of dozens that took place in response to the George Floyd killing. People just, you know, from Ohio to Pennsylvania, anywhere along the Mason-Dixon line, you know, I have found a dozen people and groups that decided because of that event to walk in honor of not just George Floyd, but all of the lives lost due to police brutality, but an intentional walk in those spaces where that had been, you know, kind of the, the game that was played all through the antebellum period, you know, that intentional space of choosing underground railroad landscapes to walk a civil rights and social injustice pilgrimage. So I, you know, there's like a, I don't know, half a chapter devoted to it in my book thus far. And I probably won't give it much more space, but the podcast will allow me to then talk to those dozen or so people, Linda Harris being one, and to further that conversation as a podcast episode where I wouldn't necessarily give it the space in a, on a page in a book. Otherwise the book's going to be a thousand pages long. Um, but the podcast, I, you know, and I think you would agree, the podcast allows us to take a little bit deeper dive into some of these, you know, topics that are, I think, more accessible as a podcast to listeners than picking up a book. Well, it's, so clear from the the conversations I've had with you previous uh, to today and also for this podcast episode um, that you are very passionate about the environment, about conservation, about being a pilgrim, uh, about pilgrimage. I think about being a mindful pilgrim uh, also uh, in, in seeing uh, the landscape and the environment uh, in an intentional way that even pilgrims who are walking slowly may miss because just not being attuned to what's happening in the that that uh, that space, um, the the ge geographic space. Um, are there any final thoughts you have about? Uh, stewardship or conservation or environmental justice that tie back to pilgrimage that you would uh, like our listeners to know about? Yeah, I, I, didn't, I don't want listeners to come away from this thinking that this is like all heavy stuff, right? You know, the way I do environmental pilgrimage is to focus on an issue, um, past or present, or the two combined. Um, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, a lot of people do pilgrimage for recreational reasons. I mean, it's true. Like when you, when you do the Camino de Santiago, when you're going to get your passport, well, it's a pilgrim's passport. It's not like a government passport, but you know, you get stamped along the way. And one of the first questions they ask you is they're issuing your, your passport in St. Jean Pierre de Port. You know, what is your intention? Is it recreational? Is it health? Is it spiritual? Is it 
they give you a list. And I just said, you know, check them all off, right? <laughs> I couldn't really frame anything at the point. Um, but it's not all heavy, you know, it's like Linda, Linda's experience, Linda Harris's experience of the Harriet Tubman walk that she did was pure joy. Were there heavy moments? Yes. Were there heavy questions that she was trying to work through in her mind? Yes, absolutely. But the joy of walking, um, she calls it the chemical infusion of walking, lightens that load and helps you to think clearly, process clearly and in creative ways, um, those issues and problems that maybe pre-pilgrimage were just weighty, you know, just, just bothering you and concerning you. Walking works that out. So, yeah, so I don't want listeners to come away from this discussion thinking, oh my gosh, that's doom and gloom. No, it's, you know, I've never had a doom and gloom pilgrimage. Um, but they've helped me work, work through these pretty serious issues. So in the spirit of pilgrimage, you know, have a great walk, um, buen camino, and, and meant from the heart, you know, have a good walk, because they all are, even with the heaviest questions in mind, and even with the heaviest issues that you're carrying, they're, they're all delightful and, and insightful and lighten the heart. If you would like to find out more about Dr. Epig's work, her email address is peggyepig, P-E-G-G-Y-E-P-P-I-G, at gmail.com. You have just heard Pilgrim Paths, hosted by Dr. Heather Warfield and produced by Jonah Bayer. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Thank you for listening to Meaningful Journeys. This program is supported in part by Antioch University, New England, and the Meaningful Life Institute. We would love to connect with you on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter, and Facebook, or by email, info at meaningfuljourneys.net, or our website, www.meaningfuljourneys.net. We hope you will join us next time on our shared quest for meaning as we connect humanity one step at a time.